Welcome in this episode today um, of The Art of Complexity. Our, our interview today is with Dr. Anne-Marie Marlier. Uh, I've gotten to know uh, Anne-Marie over the last uh, year or so uh, as we've begun to work together. But today's episode really is about looking at uh, complexity through the lens of higher education and how uh, we we always see, seem to find complex challenges that get faced in front of us. And it's not always about what we do, but it's about the team of people we put around us. So I really enjoyed the conversation we had. Uh, joining us in the conversation is uh, Vince Lindemeyer, uh, my co-founder uh, at Genosco. Uh, so we kind of went of a, a little bit different format as we as we made this more of a general conversation between the three of us. So I hope you enjoy this episode of The Art of Complexity. Welcome to the Art of Complexity podcast, where we explore how people and organizations understand and tackle the most complex challenges they face on a day-to-day basis. Simply put, how they think and act beyond. If you or your organization faces a challenge that seems to just be unsolvable, then you're in the right place. Now, here's your host, Roy Adams. Well, welcome to this episode of The Art of Complexity. Uh, I have the privilege of sitting down with somebody I've gotten to know over this last year, uh, a little bit longer than a year, uh, along with my um, co-founder and business partner, Vince Lindemeyer. We're sitting down today with Dr. Anne-Marie Marlier. Uh, Anne-Marie, it's great to see you today. It's great to be have you with us. A um, little bit different format for us. Normally, I'm doing these one-on-ones, and this is kind of together with uh, with a couple other people. So um, just say hello to our, our listeners, at least right now. Sure. Good morning, everyone. It's a, a, a delight to be here. I'm honored to be asked to um, share a few thoughts on what is a very complex and yet sometimes can be a very simple approach that we need to look at how we move forward from um, from experiences that at times can be extremely overwhelming. So yeah. happy to talk about this with both of you. Hi, yeah. and I'm Vince, and I'm happy to be here as well with Roy and Anne-Marie. Yeah, so Anne-Marie... Um, when I, I, you know, just to kind of get our listeners up to speed, they've just heard your bio a little bit, but, you know, I, I like to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about their kind of backstory, how they got to where they are. Because, um, you know, normally those things kind of really generate some really interesting conversations around it. But, sure. you know, you, you, have a, you have a PhD um, and you spent a lot of time in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe what I would like to first ask you is tell us uh, how you got to where you are first. Sure. And then second question right away I'm going to ask you is, was there some event that happened early in your adult life or your professional life that has really shaped the way you think about the world the way you approach people and organizations and problems. So let's start with kind of give us a brief summary of how you got to where you are right now. So I promise this won't be scary, but I've always known since I've been probably five or six that I wanted to be a teacher of some kind. Mm. Um, I was that crazy kid who was helping, and this is back when you could do these things, helping the teachers correct and grade other students' papers. (laughs) Um, I was the one who said, oh, I'll help work with that person because I'm good at spelling. And so I've always known that. Um, As you know, I got older, the, the type of a teacher that I wanted to be shifted a little bit from elementary to high school. And my original goal when I kind of started that professional journey was to be a professor of medieval literature. You know, the, wow. the things that people's eyes roll in the back <laughs> of their heads and they go, what did he or she just write? <laughs> I still have all those books and, and they still mean a lot to me. But I also had teachers along the way who for me, helped me to see that it wasn't just about the subject matter Mm -hmm. and the content. It was about the relationships that we as educators have with a student, um, someone maybe we tutor, a colleague. And so uh, I wanted to eat, and so I gave up on the dream of becoming a professor of medieval literature. (laughs) But I did find a home and a calling in higher education. So I spent the first part of my career, about eight years, in student affairs, in residence life, student activities, helping student groups find their way, working with student leadership, um, scholarship, travelship. And uh, I took a little break um, because I was in a 
a position where I think many of us find ourselves in, where there's some some politicking going on, and it it overwhelmed me, mm-hmm. and so I stepped out for a while. But every time I stepped out, whether it was um, helping a good friend of mine run a floral business or being a store manager at the Disney company, I always found the lure and that draw of the interaction, that relationship with my students yeah. called me back. Hmm. And so about 10 years after I graduated is when I really found my academic calling, and that was with adult education. Okay. Um, so that led me through to my master's degree and my doctorate, which are both in adult education. And it's that, uh, that urban environment in particular. The, sometimes I think the harder the environment, the tougher the client, um, the more difficult the student that really attracts me to say, I can help. I can mm-hmm. do this. Because, again, it kind of goes back to that philosophy that mm-hmm. I know we'll talk about in a little bit about how I want to help them be successful. Yeah, Anne-Marie, your bio says PhD in urban education. Can you explain that for the listeners? Because, I mean, sometimes I question that, but is it that harder environment? (laughs) It's not necessarily a harder environment, but when you get a group of people, and you can define urban in so many different ways. I mean, it could be an economic indicator. It could be population density. It could be the socioeconomic indicators that I think go along with our perceptions of what urban is. For me, it was more the socioeconomic. So when I think of an urban environment, I think population density, I think economic challenges in many ways. I think in many um, instances, there's also a gap between haves and haves nots. Mm -hmm. Um, And that happens in rural areas too, but it's I think more pronounced in an urban area. And people don't think often of the challenges in an urban area. For example, we think a city has lots of opportunity, lots of companies, lots of um, ways to get ahead in education. And yet when you look at some of the different kinds of demographics that break down income, education level, uh, family structure, those pieces really impact how successful an urban area is. So it's not just an urban planning, urban economic. For me, urban education means how do all of these demographic factors, and in particular, again, the socioeconomic factors, impact someone's ability to learn, whether they are in grade school or high school. And for me, with my adult ed background, Mm -hmm. how does it impact adults' ability to learn? If they've never had access to a good school district, if they've not been able to take advantage of um, some support resources to do well on um, an SAT or an ACT, if they had kids at a really young age, maybe hustled for a living, were incarcerated and now are out and have to find their way again, and we know that education makes a difference that's where I come in and say, I understand the complexity of learning in an urban environment. Mm-hmm. How can I help adults who want to take part in that, take part in that? Well, I think we'll have an opportunity to really dive into maybe a particular uh, situation or problem that you, you took all this great research and uh, education and put it to use. But I, I want to back to my second, my first or second question. I can't remember right now, but... <laughs> That, that event or that person or something that sh- truly shaped you? Because I think that's something that's, for my, me personally, I've always had, you know, there's there's a couple of things that happened early in my adult life that mm-hmm. had tremendous uh, effect on then the way I looked at my life, looked at my future life and then the directions that I took. So I like to ask this question because I think ever, all our listeners are in that kind of, they're in that, that kind of situation where something's affected them in mm-hmm. the past and positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe share with our listeners, if you want to go a little personal, you can, if not, that's okay too. But something that really shaped the person that I know now, mm-hmm. Anne-Marie. So I think there are two, two groups of people uh, and and two events that have shaped that. One is that I have always had amazing teachers from kindergarten through college and grad school and beyond. I have always, always had 
an educator, a teacher in my corner, encouraging me and saying, you can do this and keep going. So that's one, because that is truly, and there's a lot of research from Gallup that says, if you have that one teacher in the school, that makes a big difference in post-school success. Mm-hmm. I think the other event that shaped me is, um, I grew up in a fairly nuclear family, and, and like all families, we had our challenges. Um, when I was 23, though, my parents were both killed in an accident. Hmm. And so I was just a year out of college myself. My sister was a junior in college. And all of a sudden, I was thrust into this world of, I'm barely what I would even consider an adult. And now I have to be mm-hmm. the adult. My sister still needs me. Um, you know, And it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And, and my parents had always been there for me. They had been there to encourage me to correct me, to coach me, to say, you can and be prepared because, and I didn't know that I would need this, but you never know what's going to happen. So always be prepared. But my mom and dad were also people, people. Uh, My mom was a psychiatric social worker. My dad started out as a priest, um, was about a year away from his final vows and then worked for social security, helping others. Mm. So that social work education piece is sort of something that's been ingrained in me. So Mm -hmm. it's always looking at people as there is always potential. There is a relationship that needs to come first. We need to see people first, Mm -hmm. then other things later. And so that has always shaped my life. And I think when my parents passed, um, you know, especially in honor of them, I I try to move that legacy forward. Well, that's very admirable. And, um, I can't imagine going through that, first of all, but uh, I have obviously in, in my professional life experienced some tragedies and stuff, but I really appreciate that, that, that you, you use that in a positive way that something so deep and hard hurt um, and, and it hasn't defined you. It's, it's made you, at least it, with the person I know now, I can, I can now put some linkages back to that and say, wow, um, you, you, I think your parents would say you've done well with. I hope so. They're, yeah. they're pretty awesome, um, and and I think they did a pretty good job with uh, with both my sister and I. And so I'm I'm grateful. I think those are the things that you know when we look back, it's it's what is our legacy going to be? Yeah. And so um, whether it's organizationally, professionally, personally, you know, what's our legacy? That drives me. What's my legacy? So let's talk a little bit about that then. Um, you've done some pretty amazing things professionally. I had opportunities to do some unique things as well. Um, is there maybe a situation or experience that, well, let me ask it this way. When was the first time you realized you were facing a problem that wasn't necessarily complicated, that you could just break down and easily understand the parts and put it back together and figure out what the one part is that needs to be fixed to then solve it, but you recognized that this problem was not structured. It didn't have any really right answer, right? Or there were many answers. Sure. And tell us a little bit about that first experience into complexity. So I think the first experience into complexity, um, and there have been several along the way, and I'm sure we'll end up talking about a few of those others, was it was actually my first job out of college. And um, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just out, outside of that. My first professional job was in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, so a very different environment. Mm -hmm. And I was going to be, and was, the resident director of a women's residence hall for a very small Finnish, F-I-N-N-I-S-H, college in Hancock, Michigan, about as far north as you could be. Hmm. When I took the position, there were six women, and yes, you heard me right, six (laughs) women in this residence hall. And I was tasked with being basically a you know, house mother to these six women. But six women does not a residence hall make. And so one of the tasks that I saw was how do we start to really build this sense of community? How do we, I think, expand and share what can happen starting from a very small environment and get bigger? I mean, I loved the idea that we could be close and and kind of almost like a a sister's type of a a group. But again, six is tough. So taking again that 
that mindset of, of building relationships. It was how are we connected? How are the six women connected? What do we want to see? So we agreed that we wanted to start to build a series of community events. So we had two women in there who were exchange students from Japan as well. Hmm. And two women who were from the lower part of Detroit. Uh, yeah, Detroit. And then two women who were from the Upper Peninsula. So we had huge wow. cultural gaps and disparities in understanding. And once a month, everybody was responsible for sponsoring a dinner that all of us would attend and sharing ideas. And after the first two or three, there was a lot of excitement about them. And so we decided we could invite others from other parts of the campus. Mm -hmm. By the time I left, we went from six to 30, which doesn't sound much, but when you do the math, it's a pretty significant percentage. It is. And... That is something, again, kind of keeping that legacy thought in mind. If I was only there a year, it was a little far from home, and um, you know, a number of personal changes happened. I thought, if I left that legacy with those women, that they can build something almost, not out of nothing, but out of very little, mm-hmm. and think about it, and let's start simple. And then we add more complexity, you know, add more people, add more ideas. Now you have this great uh, sense of community, that's a pretty good legacy yeah. to leave. And so I think that's an early one. Okay. Well, let's, let's maybe talk a little bit more broader in scope, mm-hmm. yeah. if we can. Sure. Um, when you, if I remember right from, from our conversations in the past, uh, you had the opportunity to work at a statewide level, mm-hmm. um, very complex challenge and problem mm-hmm. around an education solution that people were looking for. Mm-hmm. So maybe briefly set that up for our listeners. What was the what was the initial problem that you were facing? How did you really frame out the thinking around that problem, the team that you may have been even led, mm-hmm. how you helped them understand the true problem? Because mm-hmm. I think what we like to tell our listeners, in complexity, there's, there's the immediate on-the-surface problem, right. but then when you start to peel that onion back, um, you really discover that there are many, many problems. And <laughs> yes, can you define point. one problem? No. <laughs> There's many, many problems. They have many, many stakeholders. So it's kind of set up that larger um, you know, problem that you faced um, in your career there. Sure. One of my career-defining positions was at, um, at an organization that I was at as an admissions rep, left because it wasn't the bottom line numbers fit for me in my career. I came back a couple of years later. It was very small. It was about 200 students. And over the 12 plus years when I came back, we grew from 200 to probably almost 2,200 over three campuses. So there was a tremendous amount of growth Hmm. that was happening in that position. And I was serving as um, a dean of instruction. Okay. Um, And I started as an associate dean and, and moved into the dean. So as the Dean of Instruction, I not only had responsibilities for my home campus and the programs that were on that, but also as we grew and added infrastructure, extending out some of those programs market-wide. So one of the programs that we had worked with was um, a nursing program, healthcare program. And this was, uh, as my former boss likes to put it, kind of hot on the heels of my working with a medical assisting program that also had similar challenges. Healthcare works in such a regulated environment, and nursing in particular, because, I mean, quite honestly, in a business decision, somebody might lose a good amount of money, but nobody's probably going to die. Mm. Whereas in the healthcare environment, you know, if a nurse isn't properly trained, isn't properly certified and licensed and monitored, somebody could die. Mm-hmm. And so there's a different kind of a mentality. And as we were expanding um, this particular nursing program, we had a fairly large nursing program. Most nursing programs, especially at a smaller school, might have 60 to 90, maybe 120. We had about 450. And, and for our listeners, where was this? At? This was in back in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, okay. And there had been several leadership changes for this nursing program for a variety of reasons. And a lot of turnover in the faculty. Mm-hmm. And all of this while we were growing and adding more students. And I think in in many situations uh, with nursing programs, one of the problems they face is a limited amount of clinical space for their students to go out and practice. 
So this kind of kept rolling along and rolling along, and I didn't initially have a lot of work with the nursing program, but when um, in, in one particular, in the span of a couple of months, both the director of the nursing program and the associate director of the nursing program left hmm. fairly suddenly. Wow. And so... You had a vacuum of leadership then? We had a vacuum, I would say, of formal leadership. Okay. So I want to make that distinction because within the nursing team, there's also informal leadership. And I think that's true of any organization. There's always an informal group that mm-hmm. leads from within. So when I worked with both my campus director and the state director, what are we going to do? Um, I did not have his background as a nurse, so legally I could not be named the director. Mm. I don't have the training, and, and nor from an ethical perspective would I want to. That mm-hmm. That's not what was needed at that point. But what was needed is to find a way to harness the leadership that that existed informally within the program and be able to work with that group to keep moving the nursing program forward in terms of uh, programmatic accreditation, state approval, and then also build relationships with some of the other healthcare organizations that we relied on so that our students had access to be able to to be in clinicals and Mm -hmm. to be trained. So were you leading this effort or doing this all on your own, or did you have a team of people with you uh, going along this journey? (laughs) I would say that I had a team of different kinds of people who provided different perspectives, and that's where I think that complexity piece helps a little bit. You know, complexity, sometimes we think, oh, it's complex, oh my gosh, it's overwhelming. But complexity can also mean that you're able to draw from a vast network of resources to help make something wonderful happen. So for example, my um, campus director, my state director, and my immediate peers, the other deans, were 100% supportive. You know, if I had a question, if I needed to um, hand off a piece or a project, Mm -hmm. they were there, Mm -hmm. absolutely 100%. I had built relationships with individual faculty members within the nursing team. And so I was able to rely on some of them who Many of them didn't want a formal. They didn't want to be the director. They didn't want to be the associate director, but they had great ideas. And so what we did is we actually formed a nursing council. Hmm. And it was that nursing council where I just sat in kind of as a facilitator to say, these are the decisions we need to make, and these are our timelines, or these are our challenges, or these are new resources. And it was this nursing council that made the hard nursing decisions so that I could focus, I think, on the bigger picture of timelines. I see in what I hear, especially working with you, is that you're almost a trail guide for people working in complexity. And one of the stories that I'd love for you to reflect is what you do to students in the classroom when you were given a class, you didn't have a syllabus, so you had the students write the syllabus during the course. And so um, today, this morning, I was listening to Richard Rohr falling upward, and there's a synonym to complexity, which was um, struggle. Mm -hmm. And so... As a teacher, you say that sometimes they may not like you at the beginning, Mm -hmm. but at the end, when you've forced them to struggle and learn, Mm -hmm. there's this this symbiotic relationship between struggle, learning, and complexity, Mm -hmm. and you're a trail guide. So could you like talk about some of your techniques in the classroom as well? So one of the things, Vince, that you're referring to is I start most of my classes by saying that if I have left you as a class with more questions than answers, then I have done my job as a teacher. And I get, again, deer in the headlight looks like you're the teacher. You're supposed to provide answers. You're supposed to tell us what to do and how to think. But that's not how I see my job as an educator. My job is to help develop that in my students. And so, um, you know, I joke oftentimes my students can tell me I'm full of a four-letter word, and that's fine, but I'm going to challenge them to prove it. And if they can prove it, then I will stand up in front of the class and say, you got me, I accept that viewpoint, well done. 
and my students then learn, and they don't think they're learning. They're just all about trying to prove the teacher wrong, but they're learning how to research. They're learning how to craft an argument. They're learning how to speak in public. So it's a very calculated kind of move on my part um, that accomplishes a number of goals. Uh, the one instance that you were, I think, referring to, and I've done this several times, is I was handed, again, a fairly small class, and it was a new type of a class, so had a syllabus, and I, there were a couple of resources, including the text that I was told I had to use. They weren't my choice. And so built the syllabus, started teaching, and halfway through I was supposed to be observed by our campus director. And I had prepared a Jeopardy game, and it bombed. The <laughs> students had clearly not prepared themselves the way Uh-oh. that I needed them to. Right? No surprise sometimes, right? And so I thought, oh, great, this is the end of that teaching contract. And so I went to the dean at the time, who's still a wonderful friend, a great mentor, a terrific champion. And I said, Kate, I, this isn't working. And here's what I want to do. And she said, okay, tell me, what, what do you want to do? I said, I really want to rip up the syllabus and start all over. And she smiled and she said, middle of the term? I said, yep. She said, do it. Mm. So I literally went into the class the next time and I said, okay, here's the good news and here's the bad news. Good news is that um, we still have eight weeks left of this semester. Bad news is, is midterm didn't turn out so well. So... How are we going to fix this? I ripped up the syllabus. And they all looked at me with this kind of terrified look. What are you doing? I said, we're going to build this together. Outcomes, non-negotiable. We have to meet these outcomes. But how we get there, it's up to you guys. So let's start figuring this out. And of the, of the small amount, I only lost one. She had some pretty significant family matters. She actually ended up dropping the course. Everybody else passed with mm. C or better. So I think there's many approaches when you're faced with a challenge or complexity and how do you do this? There's many, many ways to approach it. But again, I guess I kind of go back to that, okay, faced with a problem, what are the basics? What do I know? What's my scope? Like, where are my parameters? And then who do I want to be involved in helping solve this? Because most often these problems aren't me problems. Some of them are. If I mess up, it's my my problem. But I think I've built a career and, and one of my former supervisors used to call me a special projects queen because you hmm. give me any kind of a, a project, any kind of a complex challenge and know that somehow, you know, we'd be able to move it forward. Well, that's a skill set <laughs> that you're actually talking to that I'd like to frame out a little bit, which is what we call subject matter expert liaison Mm -hmm. and something that we've done here at Genosco where Mm -hmm. we just work with subject matter experts and we start to really lay out what they're trying to do in a way that shows learning outcomes, learning objectives. And then before you know it, they see the curriculum that they've developed. So I've really seen that in action with you. If I, and if there's a doctoral candidate listening right now, and they're struggling with their dissertation or what they should do. And I know you've been the dissertation chair for a struggling doctoral candidate. What, when someone comes in, they're frazzled, they're anguished, they're gnashing their teeth, how do you settle them down and how do you kind of sort things out at the individual level, but at a very high academic achievement? I think any time we're faced with challenge and complexity and a feeling of being overwhelmed. Listening is probably one of the most important skills we can have when we're working with that because it's important to validate what's going on. If we go into a situation and say, it's not that big of a deal, it is that big of a deal to that organization, to that individual, to that student. So listening is critical. Once um, you know, to take your example of a, a grad student who's struggling, once I listen, then I might pick out a couple of, of key things. Again, not a lot, but a couple of key themes that I'm hearing and make sure that I'm hearing that correctly. So, so you know, after I've, I've listened to this person and said, okay, now we'll just, Joe, you know, 
here are the three things that I picked out that you seem to be struggling with the most. Is this correct? Am I missing anything? Or is maybe one of these really not that big of a deal? Once we get some agreement as to what the key and core areas are, then we take it back even further. It's that old sports analogy. Let's go back to the basics. Let's make sure that the core pieces and the core understanding is in place before we move on. A lot of times I'll find out that it's something maybe they're not understanding a particular statistical process or how to code data um, that they've gathered <coughs> excuse me, in their research and go back and say, all right, let's just break it down a little bit. Here's the process you used. Here's the process you need to continue to use. Here's an example at each step of how to do this. Now, let's take your own data and let's work through an example. And usually what that does is it serves to demystify this complexity, this feeling of being overwhelmed. It's, oh, it's really not, I have to do this entire huge 70-page paper by myself. No, there's a step here, you're going to do this. There's a step here, you're going to do this. And so um, it just serves to provide inspiration, it serves to provide confidence, and it serves to provide a deeper understanding. And I think, too, as an educator, one thing that always guides me, because then I ask them, now go find another peer who's struggling with the same thing. Best way to really understand something yourself is to teach it to someone else. That's Explain so it to someone else. And both of you have taught numerous classes in a variety of different discipline areas, right? Yeah. So the best way to understand it, teach someone else. And it goes for students who are struggling, too. Share with a peer. Give each other feedback. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to shift a little bit yeah. the gears on you here because I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball maybe. <laughs> um, I want to hear about your biggest leadership challenge. <laughs> um, there have been so many. <laughs> I, I would probably say that you know, if we go back to the example where I was working with the nursing team, mm -hmm. I've always felt fairly comfortable as an educator being able to take a high-level look at things. Um, but when it comes to gaining credibility for subject matter expertise, and especially in a field like healthcare, you know, again, where the stakes are much, much higher, I think that was a challenge that I faced early on is getting buy-in and credibility from the nursing team not from an interpersonal perspective, but from a, you are not a nurse. How are you going to lead us through programmatic accreditation, state licensure processes, um, and speak with credibility? So how do you navigate that? So in my mind, and I've told this to every single team I've ever worked with, I can't possibly, as an academic dean, know everything about every subject I ever oversee. So I never pretend to be that subject matter expert. What I say, and I, Vince, I think this goes back to a little bit about that analogy of a trail guide, is I can, though, help to facilitate the questioning process. I can help to, to peel away some of the subject matter expertise that drags us down into the weeds and help us to find the broader processes that we do share. The, I mean, accreditation processes are fairly similar across a variety of different formats and mm -hmm. platforms. The process isn't all that different. The details. So if we can say, as leaders... I don't need to know everything. I need to know enough, and I would joke, and I'll say this with a smile, a crooked smile for your listeners, is that I know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> you know, I know enough, I used to joke with the nurses, that I know enough nursing language and nursing processes to be able to ask where the bathroom is or where the bus station is in nursing ease. <laughs> and so if I have that basic understanding, and it takes a little time, that's, that's sort of the things that you don't think about. You know, is what do I need to do in the background to gain a little bit of credibility, that I could have a, a, an intelligent conversation with the experts, my nurses, 
so that we could start to then find some of those common places. And I could say, okay, so here's how that translates into what you need to do for accreditation. And they could say, oh, okay, here's what you're taking and here's what I need to do for my students. Yes, exactly. And I think that's how I faced almost every leadership challenge is learn enough about the subject to have an intelligent conversation, but never proclaim to be the expert unless you really are in a certain area. Yeah, I think that's um, something in my own, well, in my own profession, you know, we, we are specialist early in our careers, but then we become more generalist. Mm-hmm. And the United States military does that on purpose um, mm-hmm. because uh, the higher up in <clears throat> responsibility you go, the more uh, combined the, the assets you have underneath your charge um, are. And you have to be able to understand a little bit into the technical side of it, but you know, my for my example, you know, I'm not a field artilleryman. Uh, I know enough about ballistics to say I know what the difference is between a low angle shot and a high angle shot. Um, but I don't have to know all the computation and math behind how a round goes 15 miles and hits a point on the ground that we say we wanted to hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just need to know enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I need to know how to use the asset mm-hmm. and use the capability in an organization, a complex problem mm-hmm. set to be able to effectively achieve the overall big goal. Mm-hmm. So um, I can appreciate that. I think that's, from for, the, you know, for those who are listening, when we're talking about a, a complexity, we, we've had a variety of different types of guests on here. And I really, I'm really glad we had Anne-Marie on here to, to really talk about this from an education perspective. Because I don't think we think about education that much as being complex, but learning is incredibly complex. It's very fluid. It's dynamic. It can change. Research stuff. All this stuff changes all the time. And I think, mm-hmm. especially for those of who are parents and have kids in <laughs> secondary or elementary school, it, it's very structured. And you know, I have a theory that I think there's something that happens in fourth grade where kids hate learning. It actually happens a lot earlier. Um, I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to, to thwart that with, with, my current, with my current third grader right now. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you another kind of sure. little curveball. I want to hear about a failure. When have you been in a position of leadership or you've been in a position where you faced a complex challenge, you thought you had an outcome that you thought was the the goal Mm -hmm. didn't achieve it, Mm -hmm. something else might have happened. So uh, one thing that's coming to mind is something that happened um, fairly recently. And and as I've gotten to know um, both of you over the course of 2018, there's been a lot of personal and professional change and transition and challenge this year. And I think it started back when I didn't know what to call it, and I don't think I even knew how to identify it until recently, but I was pretty burned out in my last position. Mm. And my last position had a significant amount of challenge and change in and of itself. And so when I came in, I thought I was going to be, and I expected to be working in one area on, on one set of responsibilities and that changed several times and because I was already coming in with some burnout I don't think I was working as effectively when 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 the last set of changes hit I don't think I was working as effectively as I could have been and normally do because I was burned out from the change I was burned out from the complex problems. I was burned out from personal changes that were happening, good changes, but still a lot of change. And, um, and at a certain point, when I realized that if I was going to be successful in one area, I would have to give up other things, I needed to start making some decisions as a leader. Um, and I always default to, as an educator, I always 100% will default to what do my students need. Mm-hmm. And it led to some other challenges in other areas, and I wasn't being effective in other areas. And so uh, made a decision to step back mm-hmm. for a little while and do some reflection and think about where was I professionally, where did I need to go, um, and sometimes just to take a step back and go, all right, you know, now I look back and say, I was burned out. I needed that time to just not do anything for a little while, Mm -hmm. too. So, you know, at first I thought, well, 
what did I do wrong? Why wasn't I able to hold it all together? Why wasn't I able to keep my performance at the level that I've always been at? Why wasn't I able to serve my students in the way that I wanted to? Why wasn't I able to do these? What happened to my capacity to handle complexity? Mm -hmm. And on the surface, yeah, there was definitely some of that, and I own up to that, but there was also, you know, if we're not looking behind, you, know, you talked about layers of the onion, if we're not kind of peeling back some of those outer layers to really look at what the core was, and that's what was happening to me, is I needed to start peeling back those layers to find out what's the core of what was going on. Uh-huh. Once I figure out what the core was, then, okay, I've named it. Great. Now I've named it. Now, where are my resources? How do I start to... Um, refresh? How do I start to rebuild? How do Mm -hmm. I start to do that one piece at a time and not feel bad about it? You know, I think so many times we, if we can't handle complexity, we're hard on ourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, for our listeners, I mean, this kind of leads to what I always like to ask our guests. And Mm -hmm. this is, this is a great transition time. Um, And that's you know, you've talked a lot about investing into students, and they're obviously, they're not, shouldn't say obviously, many times they're going to be of a much younger generation, um, but not always. Um, but when you talk to somebody or you're advising someone who's facing personal complexity and wicked problems, mm-hmm. or they're in a leadership position in an organization where they're facing a wicked problem, that unsolvable thing that just faces them and they just can't, you know, they don't know what to do. What's the one or two things that you would advise them to do to be able to just settle down and navigate that complexity? Uh, And it may be something you've already said. I mean, you've talked about demystifying. Yeah. um, But, you know, I just want to let you think on that if you need to and... The, the one word that keeps coming to mind is outcome. Is what is the outcome? You as an individual, you as an organization, you as a partnership want from, from this experience. Is it you want to learn a specific skill? Is it you want to create some stability and decrease turnover in staffing? Is it that you want to be able to communicate more clearly with a friend, whatever that is. But what is the outcome? Um, and it might not just be one. There might be several. So I think that's really important is what is, it, what is the end result you really want? And once we know what that end result is, then start to work backwards a little bit and be realistic about where you are now. Mm. Just because you're further away from the intended outcome than you want it to be, or just because you tried to get there and failed, and I'm using failed in air quotes because I don't ever believe that there's truly such a thing as a complete failure as long as you're able to learn from that. Mm-hmm. You know, where are you starting from now? And, and just be realistic about that because once we've got a realistic understanding about where it is you want to go and where it is you're starting from, then we can start to build in the steps to help, again, demystify the process, to make that complex process less overwhelming. And, and ideally, you know, as you go through that process, then you'll find your supports along the way. You'll find your resources along the way. And I tell this to my students every single time, too. If you're not having fun, don't do it. <laughs> if you can't laugh along the way, if you can't really enjoy the process, um, it's going to be much harder to get here. So find ways to enjoy the process. That's really important. So what are some personal disciplines that you do to, <laughs> to, enjoy, to enjoy the process? Um, one thing that for me has always cleared my mind better than meditation, better than yoga, better than anything else is walking my dogs. Huh. I love to walk my dogs. Um, And I've had dogs for the past 20 years, and big dogs usually. Um, There's something just about walking the dogs and watching them sniff, watching them do whatever dogs do naturally, that just sort of relaxes me and says, if, if they're just doing what they're supposed to do, then what is it I need to do 
to do what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So I come back from a walk with them, um, just kind of a little bit more at peace, um, unless I've slipped on the ice or something. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's something that has just always been a big part of me. And um, so that's that's probably the one thing that, unless the weather's ridiculous or I'm really sick, I, I will almost always do every day um, is walk the dogs. I think the other thing is is to treasure the relationships and to feel comfortable in the relationships that I have with people. A um, number of uh, my women friends and I talk about having a tribe. You know, mm-hmm. we need our tribes to be there for us. Um, sometimes at night, it's just snuggling with the kids. And I have young kids. I have a son your age, right? And, yeah. and if they're coming up to me and saying, Mama, can you snuggle with me? That shuts my brain down from all the complexity that's going on in my life because I'm now just focused on what needs to be in that moment. Mm. And I don't think we really take enough time to appreciate what's happening in the moment, that mindfulness. Um, so those would be the two things that I think I do every single day that, that help. Uh, I wish I could say I got up every morning and you know worked out or um, you know read five pages of my favorite book or... I can't say that I do that. I'm still, I still struggle with that a little mm-hmm. bit. But when it comes to people and what is happening now and what is supposed to be because that's the natural order of things, that, is, that drives me. That's, that's good. I, I think she passed the test. <laughs> I, was, I was going to say as part of navigating the unknown, navigating complexity, you always pull people back up to, okay, what is the outcome or learning outcome? What is the outcome of this endeavor? Mm -hmm. And it's a calming effect. I think it's a very strategic question that people can ask. So that was in my mind. You said it, so you passed the test. You as an educator, I I think sometimes we make the worst students. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this kind of as a little bit of a follow-on personal discipline type thing, but what is a book that you will always recommend to somebody the first time you meet them or maybe the second conversation you have with them and why you mean other than Chaucer no I'm teasing (laughs) um boy that is a really tough question um three of my top strengths from Gallup are um, input, learner, and intellection. So I call it the perfect nerd trifecta, and and I'm proud of that. And so I'm always reading. I'm always learning. I'm always listening. Um, Well, let me reframe it then. What's the last book you read that had a huge impact on your thinking that may have shifted something about how you think about the world or the way you approach people or problems or relationships hmm one of the books that's on my nightstand right now and I I picked it up and this is going to be terrible but I picked it up almost 20 years ago and lots of you know moves and changes and packing and unpacking and I found it a a couple of months ago and it's called The Living Company Hmm. and um, I'm probably going to mess up the author's last name but it's Ari A-R-I-E DeGeist, G-E-U-S. He was a former executive at Shell. And he talks in this book about how companies, like people, live. We shift, we change, we adapt, we learn. And, you know, we may call that systems thinking, we may call that whatever it is that comes to our mind, But the analogy that a company can be alive and learn, um, I think, is something that as I shift from the educator standpoint to sometimes more of that organizational learning standpoint or organizational development, that's a really powerful metaphor for me. I think other books in general that catch my my attention are always things like The Last Lecture um, by Randy... it starts with a P. I can't remember his last name. He, he knew he was dying of cancer and mm-hmm. had several months left mm-hmm. to live and wrote a book about things that he wanted to say to his students or things that he wished he knew. And he compiled them into this book called The Last Lecture. And again, I think that goes back to the what kind of legacy do I want mm-hmm. to leave 
my students, my children, my husband, my family, my friends, my colleagues, and why wait? You know, so, so going back to that, what is it that drives me? What is it I'm all about? What is it that I am willing to stand up for? Um, so I think books like that, you know, where you've got to really think deeper, harder, more painfully sometimes, um, really attract my attention. Well, that's great. I think that's, I think that'd be a great place to just kind of wrap up uh, our episode today. Um, you know, this episode is brought to you by Genosco Consulting, and um, you can find us on the web at genosco.co. Um, and if you're facing a complex challenge or what we call a wicked problem and, and you need a fresh perspective on that, um, we specialize really in what we call navigating the unknown. Um, and we'd be glad to sit down with you. Um, Anne-Marie's uh, part of our team and she helps come in, and, uh, especially from a learning perspective, because uh, we believe that learning is in essence how you grow mm -hmm. and how you can achieve your, your goals as an individual and an organization. So check us out there. Anne-Marie, if somebody wants to reach out and connect with you, where should they do that? So um, I think on the genosco.co website is a great place. Um, there's um, some contact information there. Um, I can certainly be found on LinkedIn. Um, I love when people connect. I love to either virtually or, you know, if you happen to be in the Omaha area, grab me for a cup of coffee, um, building those relationships. Continuing conversations is always exciting. Um, so, you know, we'd love to have that. Great. Well, th thanks for being on The Art of Complexity today. We're, um, I'm you. really excited about just exploring this more with our listeners. Right, we'll have show notes on this and some of the books you referenced, we'll try to pull those in and put links in those show notes so you can get to that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I look forward to maybe the next time we can have you on, maybe after we've tackled some really complex challenge and then together we can explore that. So Vince, any closing remarks from you? No, not at all. This has been wonderful. And uh, Anne-Marie and, and I are even talking about doing a podcast on mm -hmm. the art of everyday living. So it may follow a few months behind this, mm -hmm. but Man, if we could get Anne-Marie talking weekly, that would be really neat. It would be, wouldn't it? It'd be yeah. great. Well, that everyday learning is just so important. And, um, you know, I've experienced that with both of you is we're always learning. Yeah. Um, no matter what stage, that's, that's just really critical. Yeah. Thank, so thank you. Thank you both. I appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks again for being here today. And for our listeners, look for our next episode, uh, probably publishing in about a week or so. And we'll see you next. You can reach us at artofcomplexity.com. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, I'm host at artofcomplexity.com or on Twitter in any of the other social media uh, platforms you may go to. We also publish uh, our show notes and maybe more in-depth articles on our Medium publication. If you go to Medium, the Art of Complexity, uh, you'll find us there as well. So thank you and have a, an awesome day.